You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's episode is going to be a good one. I've been looking forward to this for some time. It's going to be all about plants. And many of us in the hobby are really big on plants. We like to keep very, very well-planted vivariums. We put a lot of effort into plant choices, lighting. Many of us incorporate different species of plants because they help us breed a certain species, like many of the obligate keepers like to use bromeliads because they facilitate breeding. Some of us just like the looks of different things. But regardless, it's undeniable. Plants have a very, very big uh, presence in the hobby. And unfortunately, many of us, myself included, are not necessarily that well-versed in plant care. So, my plant care basically extends to about three or four species of plants. But I know that there's many of you out there, and there's too many of you to name, are really big plant aficionados. You guys have a green thumb compared to mine, which is more of a eh, almost green, dark brown to green. But I'm not too bad. But in any event, I've got a great guest on tonight. I have Zach Goodnow of Equatorial Ecosystems, and he's going to talk to us about vivarium plants, some of the dynamics between uh, different species, which species are best suited for certain types of vivariums, how can they work just as a house plant if you just appreciate the beauty of the plant outside the terrarium, and uh, just some general issues and concerns in terms of lighting, husbandry for the plants, etc. All sorts of fun stuff that I've been wanting to get into for a long time. So, Zach, welcome. How are you doing tonight? What's going on? Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. It's nice and rainy, swampy summer here in Louisiana. Uh, May May comes along and it, summer begins and we'll hear, be here for another four months. <laughs> yeah, we just started uh, here in New York. It was 85 the other day. And for us, that's like unexpectedly brutal. So yeah, yeah. It, it, but then it went down to 60 again. So we're, we've got a, a, a small reprieve, but... <laughs> so why don't we start off with with some introductions i mean t- tell us tell us your story what were your first experiences with plants animals the natural world regardless of what it was like what was your first experiences like and how did you end up where you are today yeah so when i was a child my parents my dad is a landscape architect and the vast majority of his clients wanted him to design spaces that brought nature into their backyard. A lot of them had larger tracts of land and they appreciated the the natural world and and creating a little forest in in a city or a suburb. And so it was his job to to bring in nature and he focused on primarily native species and he essentially created small pockets of habitat in, in people's backyards. And then my mom is a, uh, she works in a, in a hospital clinical lab. So she was the whole kind of the other end, the medical biology side. So dinner time at the, t- you know, at the dinner table, we're talking about ecology, microbiology. I had a ton of exposure from my parents as a child, but one of my earliest memories was when I was a kid, some of my dad's clients would host Christmas parties. And so they'd want poinsettias around the front door and, and you know, decorate Christmas. And so he drug me out there as a three-year-old and I'm sitting there with the clay pots and filling pots uh, with poinsettias and, and potting them up. And that turned into, he'd bring home, he'd find you know, salamanders on the job and we'd bring them home and keep them in an aquarium for a couple of weeks. And we kept speckled king snakes and several other 
we'd rescue box turtles and, and, you know, they lived in the backyard and I was exposed to a ton of not only herps, but, you know, we had, we rescued baby squirrels and, and we had flying squirrels as pets. So um, I grew up living in a zoo. And, and so I think I was kind of destined to end up in some kind of natural um, field and, and have interests in the natural world. Uh, in college, I went on uh, and studied uh, natural resource ecology and management and worked as an alligator biologist for some time, uh, but really wanted to get into coastal protection and restoration because I, I saw firsthand the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I, I grew up through that and the town I grew up in was basically the southern half of it was destroyed. And so I wanted to do something ultimately in that. I went back to school and uh, pursued a civil engineering degree. And now I'm not technically a civil engineer because I don't have licensure yet. I still need to gain the experience. Uh, but I work in uh, coastal protection design and also in some wetland restoration. That's that's quite a resume. <laughs> I mean, well, which came first? Was it the plant interest or was it the animal interest so that they just sort of go hand in hand? Um, in terms of frogs, it was, I guess, the interest was always there for both of them. And you look at my parents' bookshelves and there's, you know, discovery books and you have the rainforest and you have poison dart frogs. And I had little frog ceramic figurines that we'd find at, you know, little trinket shops and that kinds of stuff. But in terms of from a, a husbandry or cultivation perspective, I started growing tropical plants, uh, particularly orchids, uh, when I was about six years old was when I bloomed my first orchid. And so from the time that I was living at home, I mean, we grew up in South Louisiana, so we never really got that cold. There were some nights where we had to pull some things in. But other than that, the plants could live outside year round and you had to give them some supplemental water. But the humidity and the light were here. So through middle school and high school, I grew in my parents' backyard and my dad built a little makeshift greenhouse out of a, what was a, a, a fort that we used as a child. We took the panels off and put uh, corrugated plastic around it. And that was where I kept things in the wintertime. Well, fast forward to when I finish high school and move on to college. And I lived in the dorm my freshman year, like so many other people. And, you know, the dorm is white concrete walls and white plywood closets and just very stark and, and sterile. And so I wanted to bring some life into the, the dorm and all of my plants were back home because I couldn't really take care of them in the dorm as well as they lived outside. So I began researching terrariums. And at the time, you know, uh, Dendroboard was one of the premier sites for just terrariums and, and also dart frog keeping in general. And so I stumbled across that site and I learned how to build a terrarium. But as a side effect of that, I also learned that, man, you know, you can keep these super colorful frogs that I grew up reading about and they're, you know, they're not poisonous in captivity. So they're perfectly okay to keep and they're relatively easy if you do your research and get your setup right. So I built a terrarium for the orchids, and then I started planning a second terrarium for frogs. Which species of dart frogs did you start off with? 
the very first that I had were uh, orange Lamasi. So they're now known as Sorensis, but it was one of those, the uh, Penguana morphs that were around about 10 years ago. Um, probably not the, the most outgoing to start with, but I always like thumbnails. Uh, I've, I've actually kept a lot more thumbnails than I have any of the larger frogs. And so um, I kind of dove in head first and I bought a trio from a guy out of California. And um, I had those for, for many years and, and produced a, a good bit of offspring. That's interesting because you're not the first person that's told me that they started with thumbnails. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's interesting because, I mean, going back in time when I started out in the hobby, really the only things you had available at the time were Tictorious. It was like back in like the, the, uh, the early to mid-90s, even into the 2000s. They really, I mean, I remember the first time I saw thumbnails at a show probably in the maybe late, mid to late 2000s. I was actually intimidated by them, but I mean, what was your experience with them like? Did you find them to be kind of on par with what you thought your skill sub, your skill set was at the time, or was there a bit of a learning curve with them? Um, the the main thing, you know, I researched. I guess I started researching terrariums in probably August of that would have been 2010. And I didn't get frogs until January of 2011. So I sat and read for a good, you know, four, four and a half months before I pulled the trigger. And so I, I, you know, kind of got, I'm a kind of person that likes to, I will read and learn. I just consume information and I just love to learn. So that's, you know, I, I just, I read as much as I could before I got into it. And so I think probably the main learning curve was that, they're pretty fast, but in terms of, you know, I was pretty well equipped for, for how big they were. I had fruit fly culture and down, um, my terrarium, my first terrarium wasn't pretty by any means, but it was functional. And, um, I think they were somewhat as expected. I probably looking back would have done better with an imitator locale just because they're more outgoing and, and you see them more often, but, um, in general, they weren't overly hard. And you said you had luck breeding with breeding them? Uh, yes, I, I had uh, the original trio. forgot what the ratio worked out to be, but I ended up with a pair from that trio. And then later on, I added a couple of other animals that uh, a local friend ended up with that he didn't want. And they they were they were all the, the orange penguana, but his kind of had some more distinct flash marking. So I added a, a couple more to that group. I think I ended up with a breeding group of five and, and they produced offspring, um, you know, relatively often. When you say the terrarium that you were keeping them in was kind of utilitarian, was that sort of like, a, like an afterthought? I mean, you were kind of concerned with being able to successfully keep the frogs and then maybe put the plants to the side or, like well, I mean, I, I I'm I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. But why start off with the utilitarian ter- terrarium as opposed to something that was more involved? Some of it was just I didn't have the experience of building a, a tank, and so I and I I wasn't ordering a lot off the the internet. It was mostly stuff that I could source locally, plants from local nurseries, supplies from from local vendors. 
you know, cork bark from a show or, or cork bark from a pet store. Um, we're lucky in that we have tons of wood that we can get here and, and adequately clean it to put it in a tank. Um, the plants were, were not anything special. You know, they were your typical house plants that provided cover and, and security, but they weren't probably the best for a, a small tank. Um, and I was also, you know, in my second semester of college and, and I was at the time kind of a, a broke college kid. I remember some of my earliest, I mean, don't get me wrong. My, my builds are nothing spectacular, but I remember really doing the same thing when I first started out. I was like, okay, well, I have this species that I want to keep successfully. I want to set it up in such a way that I think is going to be very, very conducive to its care. And then I look back and I'm like, oh God, these things were just like uh, abominations in terms of how they were planted <laughs> and what they looked like. W what are some of the the local sources that you that you're talking about? I mean, did you have things like I mean, you, you have cypress down there, right? In in Louisiana. Yeah, I mean, we had uh, an abundance of cypress. We have live oak, which is another wood that stands up really well to um, to moisture. And then also, I. I grew up just north of New Orleans, but I went to school at LSU in Baton Rouge. And so we had the river right close by. So I had and still have an abundance of, of driftwood that, you know, you soak for a while and you you let it sit out in the sun and, and bake it if it fits. And and you can really get it, you know, as clean as anything else. And and, you know, as long as it's a hardwood and not some kind of a. Uh, resinous wood it's perfectly safe for frogs so you know i would go to the campus of lsu butts up to the mississippi river levee and so you could just walk over the levee and when the levee i mean when the river floods in the spring all you get all this wood that floats in from you know the midwest and elsewhere and then when the river goes down the, the levees are just coated in in wood so you pick the pieces that you think look the best and you can walk out with a, a truckload have you ever gotten anything that was like ex really exotic for Louisiana? I mean, and something that might have traveled down from all the way up into the north, just sort of made its way down, and you kind of thought of that and uh, saw it and said, "Hey, wait, where did this come from?" Um, a lot of the wood that you find is so weathered that you can't really ID it. I can look at it and say, "Hey, that's not one of our tree species," but it's hard to get it. You can identify hardwood versus you know, a, a pine or something resinous, but to, to say, oh, this is such and such that that's native to, you know, Ohio or, or the Midwest somewhere is it, hard to do. Um, we have found uh, some of the nicest wood I've ever found is uh, was further south uh, in a bend in the river, uh, not far from New Orleans. And, you know, some fantastic pieces that you'd need you know, three by three tanks and it would fill it out and, and look like a tropical buttress. Interesting. Well, I mean, where I, where I live pretty much, I mean, I live on an Island, so pretty much everything we get is driftwood and mm -hmm. the driftwood looks very, very aesthetically. It's beautiful, but a lot of times once you put it into a terrarium, that's not completely arid, it starts to decompose fairly rapidly. I don't know really why that is. If it's just a function of the species that we have here or the salt, that's in the, you know, that that's in the ocean around us. But I hear people in other parts of the country and really other parts of the world talking about wood that they've sourced locally or leaf litter that they've sourced locally. 
And I keep asking myself, what am I doing wrong? Because I I don't have that stuff here. Yeah, I'd imagine probably some of it is the salt. And also it could just be the duration of time it's it's there. You know, in the in the river, you've got pretty high flows. So it's probably stuff that's from maybe the previous season that washed down. So it's it's relatively young in the water. Um, or maybe a couple seasons, but it, it's not, you know, just out, you know, floating until it finds a landmass. It, it gets caught, you know, it gets picked up and then it travels down and then it gets dropped off. I got, I got it. Yeah. It's just, I'm, I'm not used to a river ecosystem here. Everything here is, is marine. <laughs> so we right. kind of take whatever floats onto the shore. <laughs> well, let's get into equatorial ecosystems. How, how did this start? When, and what are you up to now in terms of your business? So uh, it started early on when I kept frogs. There was a summer where I would come home um, from college in the summertime and on holidays and that kinds of stuff. And I would kind of act as a foreman for my dad's landscape business and would work on landscape construction jobs and do maintenance and that kinds of stuff. And one summer, uh, dad said, you know, I'm not going to have the work that I had last summer. So you probably, you know, there'll be work for you to do, but it's not going to be enough to keep, keep up with your spending money and pay rent and that kinds of stuff. So you probably need to find something else to supplement you. So instead of me, you know, going to a fast food restaurant or a local restaurant or work in retail, I thought, well, Hey, I see people selling plants and leaf litter and all kinds of stuff to dark frog hobbyists. And so we had some family property and here, you know, live oaks and magnolia trees grow kind of in abundance. And so I started boxing up leaf litter and offering, you know, we knew that there was no pesticides used on the property and it's out in the country. And so I started offering up boxes of live oak and, and magnolia leaf litter. And it started out small. I'd offer little boxes and, you know, I was just getting into this, so I couldn't handle huge volumes, but I'd sell $50 worth of leaves and I'd turn that and turn that around and buy some different plants that I didn't have because I was still, I hadn't really shifted into terrarium plants as much then. I had some that were in my couple tanks when I started, but I was still largely growing orchids. And so I would acquire some terrarium plants and still sell leaves and I propagate those plants and slowly, you know, got more and more volume of plants, but also more hard to grow or more slow growing plants that were worth more money and eventually acquired enough plants that I was building terrariums, not to house frogs, but just to grow out plants. And then, oh, by the way, here's a planted tank. What kind of frogs can I fit in it? And then I kind of carried that into, um, still had the leaf litter and came across a, a, younger buddy of mine who I ended up kind of mentoring in dart frogs, but he was raking up leaf litter and wholesaling it to a number of the big um, frog suppliers. And so he told me about it and I said, well, you know, I've got this land here, you know, two heads are better than one. And we started raking up gallons and gallons of, of leaf litter to ship off to dart frog wholesalers or just you know, terrarium supply wholesalers in general. And we did that for a number of summers right after I got out of college and then in my time back in college. 
to the point where we were sending out, I don't know, 400 plus gallons of leaves a season. And um, that I continued to invest in the plants. And by this time I had, I had been keeping these plants for five or six years and still selling plants on the side and realized that I had a, a, a full fledged, you know, small supply business going. And then the leaves got to be extra work and plants kind of took off and, and I was doing more with the plants and I didn't have as much time. And so I, we slowly kind of phased out the leaves and, and I transitioned the plants full time. And then he kind of set up and he does some plants at the same time. And to now I have two indoor growing spaces to, to grow out plants. I grow in grow tents, which are essentially uh, aluminum frame, uh, they truly look like camping tents, but instead of it being, you know, the, the camping tent canvas, the outer portion is just canvas and the inner is mylar. Uh, I have those decked out with lights and baker's racks and humidifiers. And so I've got one that's got a five by five foot footprint and another that's a four by four footprint footprint. And I grow mostly stuff that has real high humidity demands in there. And then last November, I finished building a 12 by 20 greenhouse in the backyard and I'm slowly moving the things that can either need to grow bigger than I can accommodate in the tent or just can handle our summers and little more variable humidity uh, in, in the greenhouse. And so um, right now I'm still, I'm kind of slowed down with selling because I'm focused on getting moved into the greenhouse and, and getting stuff propagated because now that, most areas of the U.S. are warming up. Uh, I'll start shipping again relatively soon, but um, I'll have a lot more volume of plants to start offering. Do you think that the demand for terrarium plants has increased in the past few years? So terrarium plants, I think, has definitely increased, especially in the last year or so but in addition to that many people are also growing a lot of the uh, hardier or plants that can handle greater swings in humidity as house plants and covid has caused that to explode uh, people i guess got sent home from work or they're working from home and so you know the time either you know they they went without a job for some time and they, they did stuff at home or they're at home all day. And instead of, you know, burning time talking to people at the coffee pot or at the water cooler, they're sitting around looking at, well, there's empty space here. I want to be able to do something. So they buy plants. Or I've also heard that mentioned about other facets of, of perpeticulture in general, you know, animal sales have really exploded in the last year. So I think there's been an increase overall in the terrarium hobby over the last few years, but March, 2020 kind of hit that, you know, we hit the accelerator on all of that. And there's a, a huge demand for, um, not only terrarium plants, but also house plants. Yeah, doing doing my research for the show, I was actually very, very surprised by the number of people that really have nothing to do with animals or, or terrarium, you know, frogs, etc. There's a a large group of people out there that are very, very into house plants, and a lot of them are keeping many of the same species that are starting to become very, very highly coveted in 
the amphibian hobby. Do you think right. that that's a function of people sort of, uh, let's just say you have someone who's in the amphibian hobby, say you have a Darfrog hobbyist. Is that person taking cues from the uh, plant people or is it sort of kind of go between? Because I couldn't really find that many people that were on both sides of the fence. I think that dart frog hobbyists or, or, or terrarium people who keep planted tanks in general kind of are the, the trendsetters for plants that are in demand and end up in houseplant keepers' hands. Uh, plants like Philodendron varicosum is a, is a great example. That's a plant that I was introduced to early on in my keeping dart frogs, and, and it's very popular in dart frog tanks, at least. Um, it, it vines, it provides good cover, it's got nice size leaves, but it doesn't get, it can, the size of the leaves can get huge in a greenhouse situation, but can be managed in a terrarium. So a two foot, uh, 24 by 24 inch terrarium can house a nice looking specimen of that plant. Um, and the leaves are kind of lime green and depending on what locale the plant was co originally collected from, you can have beautiful red veining on the backside and some kind of purple venation on the front. So it produces a very nice show in a terrarium and dart frog people have grown it for a decade or more now. Well, that's one of the hottest that I've seen houseplants as well. And for good reason, it's, it's very, very pretty, but it all started, you know, there are vendors that aren't necessarily geared towards dart frogs that are offering that, but the vast majority of the plants that were supplied to the houseplant hobby came from dart frog people or planted tank people that have been growing this plant for a very long time. I, I had one actually in a, uh, I had a, it actually ended up being too big for it. I had one of the, um, actually I have several of them. It's the 18 by 18 by 24 high exoterras. And I had one and I was surprised at how vigorously it grew. And I mean, it, it got to a point where it was, it was just blocking out all the light. I had to pull it out, unfortunately. But I mean, how do you choose which plants are appropriate for a given size vivarium? Because that was always an issue that I had was I would acquire a, a potted plant or a cutting and I would plant it in the vivarium and it never really did exactly what I thought it would do. It would either take off and kind of take over the whole place or it would grow in such a way that wasn't really consistent with what I thought it was going to do. Meaning, um, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example here. I guess I would have to say, oh, it's eluding me at the moment. Um, well, anyway, let's just, let's just, let's just say the last pieces that I mentioned, it, it grew way too large, but I was under the right. impression when I bought it, that it was just going to kind of, I mean, it was big, but I was under the impression that it would just kind of stay maybe two or three leaves. How do you plan which plants to choose for a given size vivarium? Some of it is, well, I guess more important than anything is the species you intend to keep. Um, you know, some species that are more skittish want a tank that's packed with big leafy plants. And in that case, having something, and, and also, you know, reduced light. And so in that case, something like a varicosum or another kind of vining philodendron or, or aeroid in the canopy that you get bright spots, but they're only in the upper reaches of the tank. And then you have very shadowy grounds. 
benefit that species because they, are, they feel more secure. So even though they're naturally more skittish, they're going to be out more because they know they can take a jump three inches to the right and they're undercover. You also have species that want to perch specifically. So I, I know you just had the, the episode on Craspidopus and I, I keep Craspidopus too. And for those you want plant, you know, they want to perch on in a planted tank they want to perch on horizontal leaves. So you need something that's sturdy enough that they will perch horizontally when they sleep. But then other tree frogs like red eyes or, or uh, agalichnus lemur want to sleep on the underside of leaves, but vertical leaves. So you want something that has either pendant leaves or something that's not so sturdy that their weight kind of makes their, the leaves go vertical so they have a place to sleep. The same thing can be said for different kinds of glass frogs. And I'm sure there are, and that's my experience in, is, is tree frogs, dark frogs, and glass frogs. But I'm sure the same can be said for a number of other species. So that the key first is identify what you want to keep. Second, um, some of it is you do have to, to research and see others' experience with plants. Watch, you know, there were some there's there's great pictures of of tank progressions over time and you say oh i really like varicosum when somebody plants it as a, a two-leaf cutting and then in three months with an with some kind of auto misting the plant is doing laps around the top of the tank because it just grows so vigorously and you're like well that's messy so some of it is just understanding what you're planting and uh coming up with a plan to to maintenance it you know keeping it chopped to you know, five leaves or so, or uh, planting it in certain places so that it can only take up the upper reaches of the tank, not planting it at the ground where it can run all over. Um, and the other thing is just look at ultimate leaf shape. So many, you know, you look at two extremes, most aeroids in general, especially vining ones, as they climb, and even things like Margravia and, and, and others like that, as they climb, they develop more mature leaves and they get larger. So you want to know if this plant gets two feet up a tank, what is the leaf size generally that's gonna be created there? Because it may be totally different than when you plant it. The other extreme is, well, you plant an orchid, say Lepanthes telepagonoflora, which the entire plant could sit on a half dollar. It has blooms the size of a dime, which are nice, but that plant is useless for cover and it's also not going to be as vigorous as a vining aeroid or certain margravia and that kinds of stuff. So it's going to be shaded out or it's going to be overtaken. So it's really a, it's it's researching both the animal species and the plant species you intend to have, and then also having a plan for what happens when it gets too big. Let's let's just say, well, all things being equal here, let's just say that. For the purposes of, of, of our discussion and in general, we're going to assume that most of these terrariums are based on high humidity sort of rainforest type ecosystems, right? I mean, we, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about like, you know, tree frogs and dar frogs and whatnot. Well, my question is, I mean, a lot of these things can double as houseplants under different environmental conditions, but is this type of terrarium where you would keep a dart frog or a tree frog by, by and large, like I said, all things being equal, are you going to get more vigorous plant growth 
in a vivarium situation than you would in, say, like a houseplant situation? Yes. I hesitate to say every time, but for the vast majority of species grown, yes, because your lighting is directed over the the tank. The humidity has to be fairly stable to be able to successfully maintain the frogs. Your watering is fairly stable as long as you're either on a, a strict hand misting schedule or you use some kind of auto mister. And, um, you know, just in general, the environment that you create in that little box, as long as you're keeping the parameters suitable for your, your animal inhabitants, is much more like what you would have in the wild where the plant grows. Um, there are some things that we force into a a terrarium. Take some begonias, for example. A number of begonias love wet feet, but hate moisture on the leaves. So you mist on them and they melt and then they'll come back from the rhizome. Whereas out in a house where you can keep some semblance of humidity, but you keep their, their soils moist, they do much better because they're not constantly wet at the leaf level. So there's, and then there are some things that can adapt to that and, and the newer leaves are more able to handle that misting. But um, I, I would say overall, when we're talking about Margravia or certain orchids, uh, specifically the ones that are, that like, that, are, that need a lot of water and don't have some kind of water storage organ, um, most likely bromeliads and things like aeroids will almost always do better in a tank than they would, you know, sitting on a windowsill or, or as a house plant. What about soil quality? Because from what I understand, rainforest soil is not necessarily nutrient rich. I mean, a lot of it gets washed away and in a vivarium environment, especially the types of substrate that we're using, doesn't necessarily have a tremendous amount of nutrients. And a lot of these plants seem to be either epiphytes or I guess, semi-epiphytic. Is that just a coincidence that these plants that we're choosing for the vivarium are not necessarily as dependent upon fertile soil as other crops? Or that's just, you know, it, it just, is that just chance or did that happen on purpose? Well, I think a lot, you know, as you say, rainforest soils, the the nutrients that do get to the ground are processed so quickly because of the moisture levels and the temperatures that bacteria just eat it up very quickly. So they are naturally nutrient poor. And many of these plants may start on the, on, at the soil level, but are climbers and, and depend upon, you know, whatever nutrients come from the rain or the rain trickling down tree trunks. So by pairing plants that largely come from either the habitats that your inhabitants come from or by pairing plants that come from similar niches but maybe just other sides of the world you're kind of doing it i guess it's somewhat coincidental but then it's also by design because you're not trying to grow you know a a rose or a you know a crop a vegetable crop in a terrarium where those plants may demand much greater soil nutrients because of where they came from or how they're 
you know, they've been line bred to, to grow, you're kind of fitting that, that criteria of your environment to your plants, but your plants are also requiring that because that's where they come from. I understand. I understand. I, I just, I mean, for all intents and purposes, no one's growing like tomato plants in their vivariums, but right, right. I, I thought about it. I'm like, cause I, I just, I mean, here in, in New York, we're kind of getting into planting season probably like next month in the end, of, in the middle to end of June, depending on what you're, depending on what you're planting. But I mean, here on Long Island, we have two crops, cucumbers and tomatoes. That's basically it. And you plant and you plant them around the end of June, and then by like September, they're gone. So that's my experience. But the point is, you know, no one's growing those things in vivariums. And I mean, even just to just to maintain my seedlings, which I started a couple of weeks ago, is actually more work than it is to maintain a lot of these really, really unusual and exotic plants that some of us have, well, many of us have in our vivariums. So absolutely. I mean, if you want to, if you wanted to say like boost the growth of these things, is there anything else that you could add like, like, like a, an additive to the substrate or any kind of fertilizer? So just because things don't experience it in nature doesn't mean they don't benefit from it. Um, a, a good example is down here, our uh, freshwater marshes, that's another very, very poor, a nutrient poor system or, or nitrogen poor system. But you pour a bunch of nitrogen into that system and the plant growth explodes because what limits the plant growth is the lack of that in that environment. If you were to expose those plants to nutrients or some kind of a, a fertilizer of some kind, you would see benefited growth up to a point. Now, you, there, there's the ability to over-fertilize, but in a, in a tank where you're doing it once a month or so, it's really not going to, to be harmful at the levels that are recommended or, or you know, half of the levels that are recommended on a, on a label. The only hesitation to doing that is how do the chemical fertilizers affect if you're keeping frogs? And I would hesitate to fertilize with anything that's um, commercial, you know, chemical fertilizers, because ultimately, if you're keeping dart frogs, yes, you want a nice tank, but you also want your frogs to live. Things that are uh, more natural based, and I don't have any offhand because I don't personally fertilize any of my terrariums. I, I do occasionally fertilize plants outside of them. Um, but I would look for something, you know, a, a seaweed extract or, or, you know, there's some kelp fertilizers, things that aren't necessarily chemical in, in type, but are, are plant-based or are more natural. Uh, I don't think those would pose the harm that, you know, your typical miracle grow or something would. Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not advocating using like Miracle Grow or, or anything like that. I just to kind of lead into where I was going with this. My my question was: if you have a vivarium that has no animals in it, and you you it's it's just plants, and I guess you could consider it kind of kind of static somewhat, as opposed to a terrarium where you did have animals, like my my dark frogs, for example, they they produce a tremendous amount of waste. So is that waste equivalent to fertilizer for a lot of these non-epiphytic plants? And are you going to get better growth in a 
vivarium that has animals in it as opposed to one that doesn't? Yes. If you are not actively fertilizing the empty, the non-animal tank, then, then yes, you'll, you'll produce, the waste will produce some level of fertilizer and, you know, would contribute missing, you know, nitrogen and, and, and other nutrients to those substrates. So yes, I would say, I don't know what the, you know, if you have terabilis in a, you know, you have five terabilis in a two foot cube, that probably is going to fertilize your plants better than five imitators in the same size tank, just because it's more food in, so more waste out. Um, but yes, in general, I would say they are going to provide some benefit to quantify that might be kind of hard. No, I understand. I, I apologize. I didn't quite mean to, um, you know, ask for like a name ranking serial number. Um, <laughs> But it just, to me, it just seemed interesting that the longer I have a vivarium going, the more things change and almost like, almost unexpectedly sometimes because I'll have terrariums where there's several decent sized frogs. Like, um, I, I have a, well, I mean, they're not huge, but I have a pair of, um, erratus, not a, excuse me, not erratus, <clears throat> a pair of azurias, which I mean, tinctorius azurius, but They've been in this one vivarium for a, a long time, and they make a, a lot of waste. And I don't know if it's just a combination of age or whatever, it's because I have terrariums that are close in age but didn't have the same load of frogs in them. And I get so much growth in that vivarium. I don't know if it's because they produce so much extra waste or what, but the smaller species I have, like my um, Epipedes anthonii, which really don't produce anything substantial i don't get that growth in their tank even though i have similar plants set up yeah and and it could be you know the the frog's habits it could be something you know the the azurius would more tend to the ground so if your plants are more rooted in the ground you probably have you know more waste at the substrate level than on the leaves which would then have to wash and, and end up on the ground um something like that it could be just how quickly your your substrates breaking down yeah it might not be something that if you use slightly a thicker layer of substrate in one versus the other you know there's there's other things that as substrates break down you know some nutrients are released some nutrients are bound when you add new leaf litter you're adding an influx of, of nutrients as those break down so there's a lot of ways to to introduce I guess introduce nutrients to a system, but also to kind of bind it up and 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 keep it from getting into a system. What about substrate itself? Is there a recommendation that you would have if you wanted to set up a, a planted vivarium in terms of like a substrate that you would recommend for the, I guess the best plant growth, but without you know without anything added to it that could be potentially harmful? So I look at substrate as a way. So going back to what you said with rainforest substrates are, are largely nutrient poor and they're primarily a layer of clay with whatever leaf litter is fallen at the time on top. And so I look at substrate as something to support root growth, to hold some nutrients that travel in it through water or, or what have you, but it also has to be long lasting enough that in a 
perpetually warm, wet environment. It doesn't get soggy and it doesn't, I minim, I maximize the amount of time that it's, that it's good and maintains its structure. And so there's a few different ways to look at it. If you do the, the kind of traditional false bottom with a reservoir at the bottom and, and you've got egg crate, or I think some people are using that, that foam, um, kind of scrubber foam, filter foam barrier now, or something like that, where you have a space for water to gather that you're siphoning out, and then you have substrate above it. Something like a, an ABG, you know, the, the forest floor mix that Atlanta Botanic Gardens put together is a pretty good thing to use, but it still breaks down. And even the same way in a tank, where you have maybe you don't use a false bottom and it's drilled so water is actively consistently draining out with mist cycles so i've turned changed everything over to washed turfus which is just um and i think it's turfus pro it's the it's the second smallest particle but it's basically baseball infield conditioner and all it is is fired clay pellets and it provides it doesn't break down because it's inert, it's clay. <clears throat> it, it allows for great root growth because it holds water, but it doesn't go, as long as your water line, if you have a reservoir, isn't touching the substrate line or the top of the substrate line, or you have a drilled tank to where water is just passing through it constantly, it holds fresh water, which is good for, for most of these plants that we're missing a lot. It's not really, I haven't found it to be super nutrient binding and it lasts forever because it's basically like rocks and it's not super heavy because as long as your tank is drilled, you don't have to have a huge layer of it. On top of that, I just keep fresh leaf litter. I've got tanks that have been planted that way for um, six, seven years now. And all I do is dump fresh leaf litter in it every season when the live oaks are dropping leaves. I found it's, as far as I know, regionally near me, it's easy to find. A 50-pound sack is like $15 from a turf store. And like I said, you can refresh it as you would like, but it lasts, you know, you can rinse it out. And if your tank is drilled, you flush it every so often and it stays fresh for basically as long as you keep the tank. Does that leaf litter, when it decomposes like live oak and magnolia, which is really what most of us use, mm -hmm. does that return some of the nutrients to the soil as it breaks down? Oh, yeah. You'll get, um, you know, you, you get whether it's you know, microorganisms or, or some of your cleanup crew, springtails, isopods, they eat it and, you know, they release waste or just as it rots, it releases, you know, leaves are largely you fertilize plants with nitrogen high nitrogen fertilizers to produce leaves so when they break down it you know reintroduces some of that nitrogen into into the overall system i never would have even thought of that that's a great point and i guess one other thing too that i missed on the surface is it allows there are nice little particles throughout and so it increases the surface area for your things like springtails I have springtail, my, my tanks are like springtail cultures themselves. You put the leaf litter in, and even if you clean the leaf litter, I've found that I still end up with 
some feral springtails from either plants or wherever, and it just becomes a colony. And they live in the nooks and crannies of the upper layers of the turfus because you have increased the, the surface area and ability to move around infinitely because your particles are small and they don't pack down to where they, they're, they're right on top of each other. I've noticed that too. When I, I, when I started doing my builds, well, really when I got back into the hobby back in around 2015, 16, I was using the egg crate method. And then I had the way I had set the vivarium up was I had the false bottom, but I had the back of the vivarium was visible from, it's kind of hard to describe, but I basically built them. I built a very, very large, uh, almost like a like a wall, so to speak. And behind the wall was my behind-the-scenes area where I was able to access the backs of the tanks and whatnot. And I remember being able to check the levels in the false bottom, and I just remember seeing all the springtails just floating on the surface of like a half an inch of water that was like an inch and a half below the substrate. And then mm -hmm. I sort of kicked myself for saying, oh, well, now they're not going to come into contact with the substrate at all. They're just going to sort of float around there for the rest of their lives. But with the like the, the clay ball substrate, uh, the clay ball drainage layers that I was using, I noticed a lot more mobility. Like when I would flood it, they would come up and then it would dry out. They would go back down again. Right. What about water quality? Many of us use misting systems with either RO water. I mean, the, the reason behind I, mean, I use RO water is my, my water quality here is terrible, which I've gone on repeated rants in the past, but... <laughs> Do you have a preference? I mean, I know RO water obviously has been stripped of all its nutrients anyway, but what do, what do you recommend for watering plants in a vivarium situation? I use strictly RO water now. Um, Baton Rouge water is advertised as one of the best in the nation, but when they say that, that's for human consumption. It still ends up, I've, I've done tests on my water and it still has about 150 parts per million of some dissolved ions and it's it's a lot of it is calcium and magnesium here because it's it's pulled from an aquifer um so it's it's pulled from from you know in the in the ground and so you have for humans having excess calcium magnesium you know it, it, it's not a bad thing and it the water tastes good but for plants especially plants that come from cloud forests, a lot of the orchids we try to grow, some of the bromeliads we try to grow, a number of the aeroids, and even some of the, you get into, you know, gisneriads and, and that kind of stuff, they can't handle those salts because they prevent when you have, you know, it's just like the whole osmosis thing in chemistry, you know, chemistry 101. When you have solutes in the water, you're not as efficient at pulling water in. The roots cannot get the, the quality of water, or some dissolved salts can just burn roots from sensitive plants. Some of the Lepanthes orchids that, that a lot of people grow in terrariums now need uh, pure water because long-term use of high salt water will actually will, will burn them up because they're just they're not used to that in nature. Their physiology isn't designed to handle that, and so they don't last as long. The other benefit to use an RO water isn't necessarily from a plant perspective, but it's an aesthetic perspective. If you have even relatively hard water, your Miss King nozzle or your, your Mr. whatever you use may clog. You get, you know, the, the calcium spots on the glass, you get the calcium spots on the leaves. And so you, you just end up with a nicer looking system 
using RO or, or distilled or I mean, depending on the volume of water, you can use the, the distilled water from the grocery store if you're not going through a ton. Um, I went ahead and just bought a, an RO filter, a small one that was designed for a, a saltwater tank. And I've used that for probably the last five or six years. And the, the difference in the plant growth is, is substantial or the plant health. That's interesting. You'd, you'd think that, I mean, again, I, I'm not a plant person by any means. I would have thought that the more nutrients that it would have been in there, the more vigorous growth you'd have. But I use RO for all my misting purposes, like you said, just for, for the aesthetics of having the clean glass and the maintaining the longevity of the misting head, uh, the, the, my mist king nozzles. But I'm actually surprised that you'd get that. I mean, for the epiphytes, I could, I could totally understand that. But some of the um, the rooting plants... I don't know. It just to me, it just seems like, uh, yeah, like you would have you would have needed more nutrients. Yeah, it, it's but it's all in the the what you have dissolved in your water, and you know each place is a little different. I mean, there's some places that have you know, high levels of you know moderately unhealthy substances, and and those are certainly not good. But you know, anytime you have more salts in your water, and by salts, I mean you know any charged ions um it, it the plants don't use that as efficiently what about lighting there's a there's a whole science well obviously that's a silly question because there's always been a whole there's always been a science but uh let's just say that the improvements in vivarium lighting within the past i really within the past decade it have been really much more scientific based than aesthetics do you have any choices when it comes to lighting Lighting is one of those controversial topics that I try to take the KISS method and stay simple. Um, I definitely am enjoying the onset of, of LED technology just because we are warm here and to be able to use lights that direct heat away from uh, the surface of a tank is always beneficial because you know, I set my air condition at, at 78 for the, for the house during the summer because it just can't keep up. So to not have that extra heat load in a terrarium is, is a good reason to use LEDs. The LEDs of today, I've found work just as well as a, a T8 light, um, you know, the, the kind of middle middle of the not the big T12s, but the more efficient, thinner bulbs. Um, if I had, if I was just growing plants and I had to be able to choose the best lighting for it, I would still probably use T5 high output that puts out a spectrum that's similar to um, a grow, you know, uh, the sunlight, uh, a Kelvin temperature somewhere around 6,500 Kelvin. But I've grown and bloomed highlight demanding orchids down to you know the lowest light markgravia or aeroid under a number of commercially available leds some of them aren't even marketed as grow lights i think the key is uh that you want it around that kelvin temperature of 6500 k um and then you just want a decent lumen output but i've found you know i i have plants that are growing and blooming under cheap Amazon LEDs. And then also I have some old 
uh, or some older kind of higher end freshwater planted tank LED lights that have the mixed colors to create a better spectrum that grow things maybe a little better. But the, for the difference in cost, the, the growth, in my opinion, is negligible. My experiences have been that I have, I, I invested in four of the Fluval or Fluval, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, fresh and plant. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I, I bought those about, they were really the first good investment when I got back into the hobby back around 2016. And those lamps consistently produce much better growth and color than any of the other LEDs I've used. I mean, for some of the, like the cheapo LEDs that I bought off of Amazon are just, I mean, some of them are just like garbage. They last a year and then everything burns out. But I mean, I only use those for more low level, like low light situations. If you wanted to have like a, if you wanted to keep a plant that did better in a low light situation, what would you, what would you recommend? When would, does it really matter? I mean, is, is light the same no matter what the species or are there some species that are going to prefer a, a more hushed lighting situation? Oh, no, there's definitely, uh, you know, there are some species that, you know, take bromeliads, for example. Um, uh, the vast majority of those are going to be wanted to, are going to want to be planted in the upper reaches of the tank because they demand a much higher light than something like a pleurothallid orchid. Um, a lot of it is from a plant's perspective, the plants will kind of tell you what light they want based on their responses. So take a good, a, a good barometer is think about like um, Neo Fireball, the, the common, easily used terrarium bromeliad. If you grow it in shade, it's a dark green. If you grow it in what would be good enough light, kind of kind of good light to, to for growth, it's kind of a lightish green with some red orange tinges on the sides of the leaves. If you throw it in the Florida full sun or the Southern California full sun, the entire plant flushes red. And you see a lot of that red purple pigment expression in plants as a indicator that, hey, I'm kind of getting maxed out on the light that I can take. If I get a whole lot more intense than this, I'm going to burn. And I kind of liken it in a simple way to the red or purple tinge to the leaves is kind of like a person, uh, you know, a tan on a person. They're not sunburnt. They're they're getting the, the right light that their body's responding and protecting them by producing greater amounts of melanin. If you throw a person who, you know, in the middle of who came from the middle of winter out on the beach in Florida for a week, they're going to look like a lobster. And that's what happens when you burn a plant. But if you gradually acclimate them to light and you find a spot where they get just the right amount of light, you're probably going to see relatively light green leaves with some edges that are reddish or purple. And that's kind of optimal to tell which where your plant wants to sit and it's hard to say where in a tank that may be because where your light is you know a a fire a neo fireball is gonna respond in that way being maybe three inches from an led light whereas 
you know, take, you know, a small orchid may respond that way being 12 inches from an LED light. What about bromeliad pups? Does, does the lighting affect the speed at which some will throw off pups? Because, I mean, from, from what I can gather, from what you're telling me, if, if you're experiencing that really, really bright pink and red coloration, like in fireballs, which I had, they're one of my favorite for that reason. Is that plant going to want a pup to develop a, like a farther away from that light? Or is it going to gravitate towards that light based on the intensity? Um, if it's too, if it's too dark, it will grow more towards the light and it may even elongate, you know, not maybe in pupping, but even in, if you grow a fireball in really, really low light, even the leaves, the compactness of the leaves changes and it becomes very leggy. It's creating more surface area of the leaf to maximize the light that it's got. Whereas if you were giving it optimal light, it's going to be that nice tight vase that you normally see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause I noticed that the ones that I have established long-term, the ones that really, really pink up, they seem to throw out a pup that's further away and it doesn't color up the same way that it, that I guess the, how do you call it? Is it mother daughter? Is that the terminology? With the plants? Yeah, yeah, that's a mother plant. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm sorry if I'm not quite, um, my terminology's off. But, like, I mean, I've noticed that they'll kind of just go, oh, I mean, my rationale, which apparently was wrong, was that more light is better. But that totally explains why the pups are growing off in different directions, because you're right, I've gotten certain pups where the leaves are just really, really long, and I've gotten some where the leaves are really, really compact. And I never even realized that that was a function of the lighting. Yeah, and you may not necessarily be getting pups. You know, the plant may not be pupping um, a distance away to avoid light. Some of some of the, the pupping is just kind of genetic. And you'll see, you know, Fireball has, you know, certain spacing of its pups that's kind of built into the plant. Whereas you may have a different, you know, like a Tillandsia, say, where it's going to clump. The, the space between the original and the pup is very tight. Some of that is just based in, in the genetics of the plant. Um, but your response of the pups to light, you know, that one pup, if you have a light bar across the tank, say, and the original plant is directly under it, it's producing that nice tight growth. If it pups directly lateral to the plant to where the new pup is also under that light bar, you should expect nice vase-like growth and, and red leaves. If it pups directly perpendicular to the light bar to where it's getting light, not from directly above, but a more angled light, it's not going to get the same light levels as it would, you know, the, the, the original plant. So it's, it would respond differently. Okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. It's just, they're, so, you know, they're just such a, they seem so easy, but I didn't realize that there was a lot more going on than just them, you know, tacking them to the back of a, you know, the back wall of a, uh, <laughs> the back wall of a vivarium and then just watch them go. I didn't realize that they were actually that, I mean, obviously they're easy to care for, but there was that much going on. Yeah. There's plenty of inc- intricacies, uh, you know, uh, the plants are, you can observe them just as much as the frogs and, and learn probably just as much too. 
it is gratifying when you have something that'll just take off. Like I have a, um, I had a ficus in my, my oldest vivarium, and the one I referenced before that I have the two azureus in. Mm-hmm. And I, I cleared out some of the, um, some of the foreground. Uh, I'm sorry if I don't remember the, if I don't remember the scientific name, the common name, I think it was the lemon button fern. And okay. this just took over the whole, I mean, the whole bottom of the tank was, it just took it over. And once I pulled it out, I realized I had this whole big lush growth of, of ficus behind it. And then I just kind of fluffed out the ficus and I was like, wow, I finally got where I wanted to be when I first started this vivarium out all those years ago. I mean, how do you explain, I mean, do, do plants, are they going to compete with each other inside the vivarium? Are you going to have some that are going to be more aggressive than others? Because to me, it seemed like once I got rid of the fern, it gave the ficus more room to really just explode. Oh, yeah. And if the fern was blocking some of the light for that, you know, that portion of the ficus, then it's it's going to grow slower. And And yeah, that's one of the big things, you know everybody you see these beautiful tanks that are well manicured and and you've got you know a, a vining plant that that runs along a branch and it looks just right and then you you load it up with nice small bromeliads or orchids and you know the background is you know railroad tracks of mark gravia that the picture that you see is a snapshot and is based on that keeper's maintenance of the tank if you choose plants that are fast growing and plant them with plants that are much more slower growing or are clumping and don't reach, you know, don't max out at a similar maximum size, you're going to have to maintain it more because they will compete or some things will just run over the other ones. You know, uh, there's a number of different ficus species and you've got the, the ficus pumula, which is just your, your basic uh, ficus and then the oak leaf form and there's a couple of other um bornean species that that kind of clump on the background or shingle across the background and the same thing can be said for some of the more uh fast growing margravia rectiflora species suriname they'll just run over everything and it doesn't matter if it's a plant or anything they'll just grow over it and and even moss if you're growing if you have a branch that has a bunch of little orchids on it and you plant out moss because everybody wants that look of a lush branch with moss on it you can't just let that go and and not pay attention to it because the moss will grow across the orchids crown or the the growth point where new growths are going to come out and choke out new growths or affect how the the orchid roots absorb moisture because now you have another layer of vegetation across it and they're going to be in constant battle so in in tanks or even on mounts for me if i'm growing orchids individually twice a year i'm picking moss off the mount not because i don't like the look of it but you know it'll actually smother the other plant and you know i value the orchid over the moss if it's on a mount whereas in a terrarium you know you're, you may value them equally so you have to keep on it and make sure you know this you know this plant plays in its sandbox and the others have their own and, and they all play nice I gotcha. Yeah, I. It's interesting watching them kind of duke it out, and and you're right about the moss because, 
it's such a most of such a controversial topic, uh, controversial topic because everybody sort of wants it, but then there's debate in terms of how valuable it is in a vivarium, especially with 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 frogs, because I mean many of the dwarf frog species live on leaf litter and not on moss. But right, I uh, I mean. W- what do you think? I mean, this is just kind of a, a subjective question, but what do you think the appeal is with, with moss? I think uh, a lot of people, I, I think people come into this hobby because they want a piece of nature in their house, but they don't necessarily want, everybody wants their contrived version of nature. So they want the frogs that they want. They, they're removing the bugs they don't like you know, that, you know, spiders or, or what have you that come with a tank. Um, you know, they select the plants. If you're looking at it from just an aesthetic perspective, moss is probably to, to you know, an everyday person looks nicer on the bottom than, than leaf litter. They don't understand the utility of simply adding leaf litter. Um, I, I know the use of moss is, is controversial. I'll also say that one of the, probably one of the earliest dart frog keepers um, and one of somebody who produced probably thousands of, of Tinctorius and Erratus and, and such in his time had nothing but sphagnum and live moss over the top and a Petri dish with um, a, a clay pot over the top. And he used moss because he wanted to know where they were laying eggs. He was he worked for um, uh, 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 an aquarium, and he was producing frogs for other aquariums. And so it was beneficial that he knew where the eggs were laid. And so he just kept his frogs well fed. And the petri dish is where the eggs got laid, and he pulled them. And two weeks later, the process happened again. So it can be done one way or the other, but for a general tank where you're not trying to produce for an institution, leaf litter is is obviously better. I often discourage newcomers from trying to get the whole moss thing down. People, people ask, like, well, I want to start out a terrarium. I want to get some moss growth. And I said, well, first thing you're going to do is you're going to need a lot of patience and a lot of time because... It's it it's it can be abysmal. I mean, I have I have a powderarium that I have two of my my mossy frogs, Thelioderma corticale, and and that vivarium has been established for about four years, and it, it took four years for moss to grow on an area that's maybe about ten inches square, and this is the equivalent of a twenty nine uh, twenty nine degree tall aquarium with a you know a cork cork buck and uh, polyurethane foam and, and cocoa fiber background to it with 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 a, a water feature it took that long for that to get going and i tell people you're going to be waiting a really long t- i mean it it looks visually very very stunning but i don't think people realize what a pain in the ass it actually is to do yeah it's not a fast process and if you if you do research on on trying to make it a faster process there's a ton of moss voodoo that's that's all over the internet where you're you know blending up dead sphagnum moss and buttermilk and you know there's moss mixes that is largely sphagnum that comes out of it and all kinds of other kind of make moss fast um methods and none of it really works if you really want moss growth on 
you know, a branch, let's say, not necessarily, we're not talking about the, the floor, a background or, or something, you know, in the upper reaches of the tank. It really needs to be in front. You need to start it, I guess, start with one of the um, aquatic mosses that are known to be converted to terrestrial. I think Java does pretty well, and there are a couple of other ones. I have one um, that that came from my mentor who it just, I don't even know what it is. Um, and I forget what he used to call it, but it does pretty well on wet wood, but you have to start it in front of a mister head. And it has to be misted several times a day for it to establish. And then over time, as that wood saturates, it'll take off. But like you said, to get a nice mossy branch, you need either lots of mist or a long, long time. Do you have any thoughts on some of the artificial, uh, I, I mean, they're really not substrates per se, but like, um, uh, what do you call it? Like the, uh, I mean, I don't want to name anybody's brand name per se, but the stuff that's very, very similar to speaker fabric, you know, that you'd run up, it kind of wicks the water up. And then there's uh, some other products out there that are almost look like a foam. I don't want to mention anybody by name, but you, you kind of have an idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, I so that stuff started in, I was familiar with that before I got into frogs because that started with a uh, German orchid grower, I believe is where a lot of that stuff originated and he kind of produced it. And I think it, it works if you have the right setup. He grows things beautifully, but he grows in a greenhouse. Uh, he fogs his greenhouse and he has drippers and there is a constant drip running through so the original product was just the, the fiber, kind of those scrubber pad looking things. And then later on, he developed the, the fabric that he attached to the front and, and that wicks water better. And everything that he does is based on you know, either almost constant mist or, or drippers. And it, it grows moss well and it grows epiphytes pretty well. I don't like it as a it's not necessarily as much of an issue in a, in a dart frog tank. I don't like it from a, just a plant growing perspective because things root into it and then root through the back of it. And if you have the pad plus fabric, getting those roots out when you have to, when a plant outgrows the mount or when you're trying to divide a plant is extremely difficult. You end up damaging a lot of the roots that way. And, and for speaking from orchids, damaging roots is is one of the major things that that sets back and ultimately kills a plant and so to minimize that i would much prefer something like cork or a natural wood the same i have the same complaint about about tree fern you know natural tree fern panels if you keep it if you keep a plant on there long enough for it to really build a root system into the panel and you intend to take it off you're going to do a lot of damage compared to mounted on cork where the roots run along the fissures of the mount as opposed to through it it produces good growth but long term you you do end up with issues i've never used any of those products i, I do have some tree fern panels that i acquired actually a few years ago and they were so, they were so expensive i didn't want to use them <laughs> i've been i've been saving them for something special but from now what you're telling me i might have to i might have to rethink that 
Um, you mentioned something earlier about about dividing plants, and that is a topic that I, I did want to get into. What do you think is better, getting a cutting or getting a plant that's in a pot? When I sell plants, I unless somebody begs for it and it's something that that I can't offer an alternative, I only like to sell rooted plants. And uh, the reason is is multiple fold. Um, right now, with the increase in uh, e-commerce and and just general shipping of everything, the all of the you know the postal service, UPS, FedEx, Amazon, everything is experiencing additional delays. And a rooted plant that's sent in some kind of substrate, it doesn't necessarily have to be shipped potted, but a plant that even if you unpot it and maintain some of the substrate around it, or place it in in you know moist sphagnum or something and put something impervious around you know the moist pad of substrate it handles issues in shipping much better than something that i walked up to a tank i clipped a piece out it might have a root nub i throw it in a bag and and throw it in the mail and hope it gets there in three days the other reason is a rooted plant is going to get started and acclimate with somebody much more quickly and much more easily than a cutting. Somebody, you know, a, a grower who buys a plant, regardless of their level of expertise, gets it in, the shipping process is stressful, no matter whether it's a cutting or a rooted plant. A plant's being uprooted or being chopped is thrown in a dark box where humidity levels may fluctuate, temperatures may fluctuate for some number of days, and then it shows up. If the plant already has healthy roots, they put it in a terrarium or they pot it and they grow it under a light, and those it's already got the head start of having some semblance of a root system. So the plant's not going to focus on growing roots before it starts growing shoots. If you receive a cutting, you're going to get this. It's going to go through the same shipping stress, but it may dehydrate more easily because it's not holding substrate around it. It doesn't have roots to uptake moisture in transit. It gets to the end user. They put it in a tank or they pot it. And then the first thing that plant's going to want to do is root in. And you may not see any measurable stem growth until it has a root system because it can't uptake nutrients. It struggles to uptake water. You have to keep humidity high so that the moisture losses through the leaves are minimal. And it, it, it's going to have to establish and, and, and ultimately it takes longer. And if I was receiving a plant, I would like the process to be easier, regardless of how well I know the plant that I got. Is that also something that would affect die-off? Because I... I... I've ordered a few plants online and it's, it's, it's been actually, it's been a while because most of the plants that I have now, I've sort of taken clippings from and, and transplanted them back and forth between the vivariums. So it's been a while since I bought any, but like, is that something that would contribute to die off just the stress of, of transport and then having to basically start the cycle over again? Because I remember some of the plants that I did by potted took God, in some cases, years before they really got 
to the point where they were starting to grow and become established? Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, shipping, it's just like when you when you ship animals and you end up with, you know, shipping cross country isn't ideal uh, in any case. And and so, yes, it, it, it is definitely a factor that can contribute to die off. Other things are, are things that you didn't see. You know, if the substrate, if a plant was greenhouse grown, it probably isn't grown in the same substrates that the terrarium substrate is. If it came from a terrarium grower, their misting habits, their humid, you know, their tanks might be completely sealed or their tanks might be completely open and they just missed a lot. The, moving something from one person to another and not transferring the habits of that one person to the other is all going to contribute to issues in rate of growth, rate of establishment, and, and ultimately whether or not the plant survives. And, and some plants just don't do well with some people. I mean, you get, you can probably grow plants. I have a buddy who's in Buffalo and he grows some of the more cloud forest plants far better than I ever will there because he has every, all of his setups are in his basement so he sees probably you know nights into the 60s or maybe even the 50s almost all year in the summer here i'm lucky to get my room down to 75 at night so the tent drops between his room and my room are far different and so it his setups suit higher elevation plants much better than mine do but then my setups suit lowland plants far better than his do because the plants don't reach that maximum temperature or they drop below what the plant will use you know metabolically to grow and it or or he only gets it for a certain number of months in the year where i get it for 12. so you know the the stress of shipping plays a role, but also just where the plant has adapted to grow can also factor in. What about quarantining clippings? Like, let's just say, for example, that I had a friend who wanted to give me a clipping or even a, a rooted section of plant from his vivarium. And I wanted to just either quarantine it or just make sure that there was nothing unwanted, like, you know, I, I want to make sure that there were no snails or anything like that on it. What's a safe way to either quarantine or just to kind of disinfect your plants before you transplant them into another vivarium? So I think uh, kind of the standard, and I don't know where it came from, but kind of the standard practice is to put things that came from a frog tank and are going into a, another frog tank from a different collection is to, to put them in something like a diluted 10% bleach dip. And that should take care of um, most of the microorganisms that that you know may affect frogs from one collection to another. In terms of insects, that's a little different because you can get things like you're right, like snails or even you know thrips or scale that are so small as juveniles that you don't notice them, and they also have ways. You know, a snail can actually close up in the shell. And something like a CO2 bomb doesn't affect them unless you put it through a CO2 bomb for, for hours to days at a time. And so some of those issues, it's probably best to grow the plants out in a 
in your in in you know a setup that you have for just quarantining plants or something that's not in a, a show tank to allow the plants to to grow up and to make sure that no pests manifest in the first couple months. Let's just say for argument's sake that we wanted to build a terrarium from from the ground up and just just walk us through this. Let, let's just say that we had three zones in the vivarium where we wanted to have plants. Let's just say we wanted to have something down near the near the substrates, not a ground cover, but something that would be kind of around the leaf litter, something that would go up around the background, and then maybe something that would be sort of uh, like visually appealing, like something going across like a piece of driftwood or a piece of wood across the middle. So we've got kind of like a low you know, low ground, low mid ground, and then kind of a background. Like what are some good plant choices for each of those zones inside of a vivarium? So I try to think you, you, you have to blend utility for the species with what you think looks nice. And thankfully with all of the, you know, there've been a ton of new plants that have been introduced to the hobby over the last decade. That, that you've got a huge palette to do both and even have plants that are utilitarian that, that have nice leaves or nice flowers and, and, and that. So plants that are low growing or, or you know, that are substrate in the ground plants that I like to use, and I'll probably just kind of mention in, in generalities because there's a number of species that you can use, but kind of I like to set some kind of um, a calathea or some type of ginger, a costas or monocostas in a mid to back corner in the ground. And that will, depending on what you use, get relatively mid height of the tank, give a nice cluster of stems that will provide cover. And there's also provide some kind of a, a scale to your tank. The leaves don't get huge um, and the plant doesn't get huge overall unless you get into some of the bigger gingers. But but there's a number of calathea that you can get that stay probably six inches tall, have nicely marked leaves and, and give you a nice little corner. For a background, I would use something that will, will climb to some degree and has somewhat broad leaves because that's what I'm going to use to provide ground shadowing. So it's going to produce some leaves that overlap and cut the light off from reaching the floor. So you have shadowy spots that'll make the frogs feel more comfortable. So I'm picking something, a vining philodendron or, um, there's some uh, like geogenanthus is a type of is a spider wart relative that that gets tall, doesn't have a lot of leaves at the mid level or the lower level and and can provide some shading. And then at the you know, on a branch kind of as an epiphyte running across or something that that's in the foreground but in the upper reaches i'm looking for another vine maybe but i want smaller leaves thin leaves or or leaves that don't get overly long there's some really nice uh, philodendrons from central america that they call them the winged petiole species 
Um, they were introduced, I think, through Atlanta Botanic Gardens into the hobby. Um, I want to say maybe back when when Ron Gagliardo, who was big into their frog conservation work, um, he was a he was a frogger and he had friends in in the private sector and they got some plants and and most of them are from Central America and the leaves maybe get an inch wide, typically more like a half inch and they're two to three inches long. So they don't have a whole lot of use necessarily unless you have frogs that may lay eggs on the leaves, but they're not providing a lot of cover, but they make a nice little, it makes it look more tropical. You end up with like that Liana look. And then another plant that I tend to use, and this is more just for strict aesthetics. It doesn't really serve a purpose to the frogs, but it would be low to the substrate level and has nice leaves and, and real showy flowers are some of the different um, gisneriads. Um, something like an apicia, where you end up with nicer, you know, the leaves are kind of fuzzy, so you end up with a texture. They're either purple or silvery splashed, and then you get these big flashy kind of African violet looking flowers that are either white or 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 kind of a pinkish purple. Nautilocalyx is another genus of gisneriad that more or less stay really short and give interesting leaves and, and, and showy flowers. So that's kind of how I would look at a tank. You've got some a, a, a dense retreat of stems in a corner. You've got leafy stuff at the background that kind of stays at the depth but provides shading and then just some kind of accent things to suit your aesthetic in the foreground. Do you have any thoughts about emergence for water? I mean, most of us, that, that's kind of always like a rookie mistake is you set up a vivarium and the first thing you want to do is set up this really elaborate water feature, which which I guess it works if you really have, you know, I feel like you have to screw up at least like 30 water features before you get one right. But <laughs> do, do you have any thoughts on using emergence like, um, you know, or like semi-aquatic plants for any kind of water feature? Yeah, I mean, so do you mean something like a, a floating, like a duckweed type of growth or something that's actually anchored in the substrate and grows up out of the water? Uh, both, we'll say. I don't like the use of a floating plant, um, but that's probably more just my my opinion. I don't think it is really a negative. Um, I do like the look of, of emergent, you know, there's a lot of, of species and, and they're primarily different aeroids and they came in through the, the, the aquarium hobby, uh, cryptocorins, uh, Anubius, Bucephalandra, um, Laganandra, um, Homolamina. Most of those are either African or Asian in origin, but they're, they typically grow on rocks in in streams and so they do well in a mineral substrate you know or or that's in the bottom constantly have water you know constantly exposed to water and most of the aquarium cryptocorins or, or a lot of those plants actually grow as immersed plants in the wild and will only bloom when they're grown immersed there are similar plants in in the new world in South America 
or Central America. Um, Anthurium rupicola is a really good one that's from Central America, and, and rupicola means grows on a rock, um, and it grows in the middle of a stream on, on constantly wet rocks. Uh, Anthurium amnicola is another good one, and it has the benefit of it has kind of a smaller but peace lily-like flower or, or even some of your grocery store anthuriums, the, the red showy ones, except this one is like a pinkish purple. And I have, a, I have one in one of my tanks that I bought it probably three years ago. And in that time, it's been – it hasn't held a bloom for probably two months. It's constantly sending up flowers. Um, and you also get the benefit of if you have a water feature and – your substrate is separate from your water planting something in the water feature is going to help keep that water reduce the nitrates in the water now if you have a water feature say you use a they have a tank that's got a standpipe and is otherwise drilled and you have something like a turfus or hydroton substrate and the water extends all the way across the bottom of the tank and just a little bit is in your water feature you have roots that get down into that layer from other plants that that filter the water too but if you have something where you're able to totally exclude the water and only the immersed plants roots are getting in there it is able to somewhat clean that water yeah i i mean i've always struggled with with emergence, I mean, I, I again, I kind of abandoned water features. I only have the one in that paludarium that I mentioned earlier, but the my plan of choice for that one is, I guess, kind of a dirty word, and that was kind of what I wanted to ask you was, uh, what about pothos? How do you feel about pothos? Well, you have to be <laughs> careful now because there are actually, so what we call pothos is actually a species of epiprimnum. The, the golden pothos is a species of epiprimnum. And recently, true pothos has come into the hobby. And true pothos is a genus of fantastic little plants from Indonesia and Borneo. And they've been cursed with this trade name of, uh, you know, or the, the trade name of pothos has, has kind of cursed their, their generic name. But in all joking, pothos is great for, like you said, um, in, a, in a tank where, you know, the, the mossy frogs are kind of sensitive to nutrients, pothos is going to put out a ton of growth. It's going to suck out a ton of the nitrates in the water. So for something like that, or for, I, I raise glass frogs in communal terrarium or ter communal aquariums, and I use either pothos or, um, um, Skindapsis pictus, which is just like the silver pothos trade name stuff. You know, I plant that in it and just let it grow wild and it grows up out of the tanks and everything, but it acts as, as you know, somewhat of a water filter for these animals that are somewhat sensitive to high nutrient loads. And you don't want to have to be changing water every other day. For things like a grow out, you know, if you're growing out froglets, Pothos is great because it's easy cover. It's something that you don't feel bad about chopping it up and throwing away afterwards because in a month it's going to be just as big as it was before. And then also if you're routinely quarantining frogs, you know, if you're acquiring frogs from, you know, regardless of where they came from, if you're going into quarantine with new frogs, that's another great use of it because, again, 
if you're quarantining a frog, you don't really want to track what that frog has come in contact with initially in case there's some kind of disease issue with it. You want to be able to just toss it. So you don't want to put a brand new frog in a fully planted out tank, realize that it's got some kind of intestinal parasites or something later on, and then have to scrap the tank and start over. It's a whole lot easier to throw away, you know, uh, uh, substrate layer and a 10 gallon tank full of pothos than it is to throw out, you know, $500 worth of plants. Yes. And un unfortunately I had to do that, uh, two weeks ago. I, I had to scrap an entire 10 gallon semi quarantine enclosure. And the fact that it was the pothos essentially had cost me nothing because I've been taking cuttings of the same pothos for the past 20, 22 years. <laughs> so yeah it, it's the stuff grows like like crazy but i don't know i i I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that i use it but it's interesting what you said about about the i guess the the, the true form of pothos coming into the hobby and then kind of being i guess bastardized by this <laughs> ubiquitous house plant that's like you can't even kill it with gasoline and fire but right so I mean, we're kind of winding down towards the end here, but I, I wanted to ask you if you had to pick, let's just say that you personally had to pick three plants to work with you, just you personally, w which plants would you pick and why? Oh man. Um, well, probably my favorite orchid of all time. Well, I guess it's a tie. So so I, I'm going to I'm going to cheat and this is going to be one because it's orchids in the genus Lepanthes in terrariums and out. They are they're great. They they're tiny plants, but a number of them have large showy flowers. They're probably the best dark frog terrarium orchids because they can handle being wet most of the time and minimal air movement. And most of their temperature requirements are within the range of what you'd say a dart frog needs. Um, Lepanthes telepagonaflora, I touched on it earlier, but it is probably the, the nicest of them all. It, it, the whole plant would sit on a half dollar. The flowers are the size of a dime and a well-grown plant. You don't see the leaves. It's just this giant golf ball of orange. Um, so that's, that's the number one. Um, I'll try to vary the the types a little bit um from I'll, I'll go to bromeliads i don't necessarily love neo regilias and and the the how common they're used in the hobby but there are some fantastic other bromeliads that that are overlooked and one of them is uh, racinia crispa and it's a relative of talansias but it comes from the cloud forests of ecuador and colombia and there's numerous forms, but they're about overall, they're about two inches tall. The leaves just, it's called crispa because the leaves just curl upon itself. So you end up with this gnarled form. The plants, there's some that are green. There's some that are kind of reddish in good light. And then it produces this like rattlesnake rattle flower that kind of hangs downward over the plant. And, and it's, that's bright yellow. It grows well. The only it'll do well in almost any dart frog tank. I would just position it 
near the screen top if you use screen and it needs pure water. But outside of that, it grows extremely well. And for the last one, um, I would probably pick, uh, so there's a group of, again, Ecuador, Colombian philodendrons that um, have very, very corrugated textured leaves. And they've kind of come in vogue for houseplant people, but they all swear that the plants are the devil and that they're impossible to grow. But for people who grow or for people who keep dark frog terrariums, they are fantastic and they are a great show. Uh, the species are, are Linhanini, Fercatum, and Corrugatum. And I include all three because I have all three, but I couldn't tell you which plant goes to which name. There's a huge dispute in what's what, but there's three distinct species and they're all somewhat in the midst of being described, but they don't get too big. The leaves stay probably right around a foot from, you know, kind of the tip to the petiole. The leaves themselves are like you crumpled up a sheet of paper and then straightened it out. It's ex they're extremely corrugated and they do well in dark frog temperatures. And I found that the key to growing them is mist on the leaves. So the, the idea is that they have these corrugations to provide channels to shed the water that they get in habitat. And it's, they just are constantly rained on. And so that mist on the leaves, I don't know if it's a localized microclimate humidity thing, but I throw all of, I've, I've imported plants. I've gotten them in, they look very bad. I put them into dark frog style tanks with automatic misting. And in two months, they're big enough that I can cut them again and, and, and reproduce it. Um, some people say they need cool nights. Some people say they need 100% humidity. I disagree. I've grown one, two of the species now for probably five years in dark frog tanks. And I've grown it to be one of the tanks I had it in was three feet tall and I grew it to the top. And I just recently got the third one last late last summer and i've been able to cut it like four times and just the the texture that those plants provide in the tank is really hard to match with anything else that sounds really impressive i i have like i have like so many more questions too but we're out of time <laughs> i guess like i i have a list of like i was making questions up as we were going along because um I know virtually nothing of plants and now I realize I know even less than I thought I did, but <laughs> well, um, there's always time for round two. Always. Yeah. I think we're going to have to do that. But, uh, Zach, why don't you give everyone out there or listeners an idea of how they can, uh, I guess, check out your website if they want to order plants, maybe give, uh, you know, direct them to where your Instagram social media pages are. Yeah. So I have an Instagram page. It's at, equatorial underscore ecosystems. I also have a Facebook page, just equatorial ecosystems. And I have a website, it's equatorial-ecosystems.com. But I would say I'm not the greatest at updating inventory there. Sometimes I post it on my Instagram, but I'm also always open to people just sending me a message and saying, hey, I'm looking for this, or hey, I'm looking for a plant package or, you know, I've got this size tank, I'm, I, I need plants for it and I can customize plant packages. I can 
offer whatever plants I have. Um, probably the best way to get in touch is, is to just get in touch with me. Um, you can do that. I probably respond best on my Instagram page, Equatorial Ecosystems, or to my personal Facebook. And I'm there as just Zachary Goodnow. Amazing. Great stuff. Great stuff. All right, everyone. I want to thank Zach for being my guest on the show. As usual, I, I learned a ton. I would love to keep going and, and maybe we'll do a part two of this at some point because I still have a lot of questions. There's still so much more I want to know and I hope you guys feel the same. But in any event, I want to thank you guys again for joining me. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Catch up with you all again soon.